Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today to kick off this exciting election week and so happy to have Bacha Ungar Sargon with us. Good morning, Bacha. Good morning, Rafi. Are you adjusting to the time change? I hate the time change, but I have to say this year, I, like, I finally feel rested. Like, I, I went to bed earlier. I woke up earlier, even though I hate that it gets dark so early. But um, Good for you. I'm a morning person, and so I like this time of year because, you know, the, for mm-hmm. the last three months, one wakes up and it's dark out for an hour before things become normal, so I'm very into it. All right. Well, we've got lots to get to today. Why don't you kick us off? Yes, we do. Presidents Obama, Trump and Biden all touched down in the Keystone State this weekend. We'll get into the hotly contested races there. Plus, Amisha Cross will join us later and we'll discuss Democrats' final push to get young voters to the polls. But first, former President Trump is closer than ever to announcing his comeback bid. Axios reports that Trump's inner circle is eyeing November 14th as a potential campaign launch date. The Don himself had this to say during a rally in Iowa last Thursday night. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Very, very, very probably. Though no official 2024 announcements have been made as of yet, it seems the gloves are already coming off. Trump took this jab at potential primary challenger Ron DeSantis while in Pennsylvania over the weekend. Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see, there it is, Trump at 71, Ron DeSanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7. Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Both Trump and Governor DeSantis held competing rallies in the Sunshine State last night. Neither made mention of the other. So Ron DeSanctimonious, I don't know, Botcha, is that gonna <laughs> that gonna get the job done? I like that he's clearly like trying that out the way he said it. Like, yeah. let's see, let's see if this uh, if this lands. Um, so that that was interesting. Um, look, we are we are going to get. It's just going to happen. There's going to be. I predict a big battle for the nomination between Trump and DeSantis. Um, There's no way DeSantis doesn't go for it. He'd be a fool not to go for it. This is his time. The stars are aligning for him. He has a success story in Florida to talk about. He has conservative media completely behind him, and he seems to have a lot of support among the base. Will it be enough? I don't know, but he should not he should seize this opportunity, and I don't. I don't think Trump's going to let him have it. But there's there's no way they come to some arrangement and don't have this battle. They're going to have this battle. What do you think? Yeah, I we've seen this coming a mile away, right? Uh, and I, I for one, am very excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, but the the thing is, is what you're pitting in DeSantis v. Trump is um, really, I think, much more question of style than substance, right? Mm -hmm. You have Trump, who's extremely charismatic, extremely problematic, and has this legacy that he seems intent on destroying with his obsession with having, you know, lost, which he can't admit, in 2020. And then you have Ron DeSantis, who is, um, you know, he's so precise. He's so uh, laser focused on being effective and being competent. And, And, you know, to me, it's sort of like, um, I, when I talk to people who are very, very, very pro-Trump, um, they really like DeSantis. They see in him somebody who is effective at carrying out a very similar type of agenda 
that Trump carried out, but they also feel uh, very grateful to Trump and that they sort of owe him. And so I, what I hear over and over is I really hope he doesn't run so I can back DeSantis. But if he does, I will probably feel that I have to say, uh, you know, nice things about Trump, be on Trump's side. Um, now, I, I, I think a lot of Democrats, I've been saying this for a long time, I think a lot of Democrats would vote for Ron DeSantis. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the primary, because in a general election, I mean, I, you look at what he's doing in, in Florida, and he's ruling with a mandate. I mean, he gets so much support even from Democrats for a lot of things that, you know, the elite media wants us to believe has no support from the left, but it's just not true. So I'm, I, for one, am excited to see this brawl happen. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. There's there's no question. I, I don't think anyone can test that, that DeSantis would be a stronger general election candidate than Trump and that it it's a, it's a personality-based thing in a lot of ways because on policy... There probably isn't a tremendous amount of difference between them. Of course, we don't, you know, we don't fully know what DeSantis's policies, I think, might be on, for instance, foreign policy, things like that. Right. And just because he hasn't, as a state governor, he hasn't really been tested on those things or, or called very often to weigh in on them. So, you know, I, I would like to hear more, for instance, about what he thinks uh, about uh, I mean, he does talk about China probably somewhat, but I, I, what he thinks about Ukraine, you know, aid for Ukraine and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's largely a stylistic um, clash, and he just doesn't have the, he doesn't have some of the baggage that Trump has, largely because of the election stuff, and that just Trump just happens to be a much more divisive figure, whereby he's really, 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 really liked by an element of the Republican base, and then just kind of, you know, widely despised. You don't have... Um, you know, well, you have some crossover voters for him, some, you know, kind of Bernie union Dems, obviously, in Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, helped him a lot in 2016. So uh, I don't want to say he has like no crossover appeal, but um, he clearly, you know, I mean, he also ha he, he has that appeal, but then he also hemorrhages so many, you know, independent suburbanite white women, et cetera, who might, you know, who are, might vote for a Republican because of crime or school policies or the economy, but will not vote for Trump because they just find him detestable. And, and I think DeSantis can probably, in a general, get more of those people um, than, uh, than, than Trump for sure. But, but we, have to have a, we have to have a primary first, and that will be very interesting. Right. And I think another piece of the puzzle is, uh, you know, Democrats love to say that Trump's voters were in it for, you know, his racist comments. They were in it for his mm -hmm. breaking of the norms. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's exactly accurate. I think a lot of them were in it despite his sort of ugly um, commentary. A lot of people, a lot of people I know who really support Trump really did not like the way he spoke. They really hated the tweeting. They would say to me over and over again, I wish he would just shut up and govern mm -hmm. because he's so good at governing. But, but I will say, um, you know, he took an ax to the neoliberal order that was really the law of the land in both parties, right? I mean, it's no secret at this point. The things he did, especially in foreign policy, especially on the economy, mm -hmm. was really he was taking on both parties. Um, and, and to do that, I think you do need a certain character 
um, to say, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks. The more offensive I am, the better. Actually, I'm going to do something about the border that is unconscionable, that nobody will accept because I think it's really important. And I think that that sort of, you know, um, you know, devil may care attitude. There, look, there's a lot that's broken in our nation. And that, you know, it, it, it's really a question. I think a lot of people will look at DeSantis and say, is he going to get swallowed up by the swamp once he gets there? You know, he seems so strong. He seems so committed to his values. But does he have that quality to take on both part, the, you know, the ruling party of, mm -hmm. you know, the ruling class of both parties? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. He, because he certainly, he's not as... Um, Hated, I would say, by the you know whatever we term as the ruling class of the Republican Party, a class that was humbled and humiliated by Trump. Um, all of those people preferred DeSantis. DeSantis so far is doing a good job of of, of courting favor and and having appeal to kind of all aspects of the Republican Party, even whatever traditional the, the elements of the Republican Party, if they're still there, most many of them have just left and become Democrats. You know, the the never Trump people, the Bush era neocons, those people are mostly all gone. But to the extent there's so, there's opposition somewhat to what Trump represents and what he does in the party, right, they're all getting behind DeSantis. That So are some people who really like Trump and think, right, the tweeting got in the way of policies they actually want to see. They're backing DeSantis, too. So it's really going to come down to all of them versus the base. If the base, like that per person you, you spoke to, says, we like DeSantis, but if Trump's in it, we're for Trump, then that's all that's going to matter. But we, that, I think that that remains to be seen, what that split ends up looking like. And obviously, we've got long ways to go uh, be before we get there. So it will be interesting to see. Well, because it's election week, uh, we are not having radars. Uh, we have tons and tons of election coverage to get to and more rising right after this. Stay with us. Comedian Kathy Griffin has been suspended from Twitter for impersonating Elon Musk and not clearly marking the impersonation as a parody. She reportedly changed her name and profile picture to Musk's and then encouraged followers to vote for Democratic candidates in tomorrow's midterm elections. Musk said that going forward, any Twitter handle engaging impersonation without clearly specifying that it is a parody account will be permanently suspended. He also noted that previously Twitter would issue a warning before suspension, but now that they are rolling out widespread ver verification, there will be no warning. This will be clearly identified as a condition for signing up to Twitter Blue. So mm. where are you on this, Robbie? Is this a total violation of free speech or should parody be marked as such? Well, I mean, look, this, this, I, I get that um, you should, clear, I guess, clearly mark, if you want to have a policy where you clearly mark uh, satire as satire, parody as parody, fine, so people don't get confused about who people are. I, I, that is not a crazy rule at all to me. It do, I think it does raise the specter of a kind of hypocrisy here in that, like, all the people, I mean, we're, we're just... Elon saying this free speech site this is going to be all about free speech. You know that's what we're doing. That's like well, okay, but not bots aren't free speech for some reason. And and then that will not, not marked parody is free speech. It's not free speech either. Do you see how that starts to seem a little ridiculous if we keep like maybe we could just concede Twitter is not it's not going to be free speech. It's not a First Amendment issue because this is just a private company with rules. And then we need some rules for the platform. The old rules were bad and were not being enforced well. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be any rules, which I think is what Elon is saying, but then he confuses it sometimes by, like, waving the free speech flag. Like, we're never going to have total free speech 
on Twitter, right? I mean, nobody, nobody even right. wants then, that. <laughs> and to make things even worse, um, last week he tweeted, you know, there's been a wild exodus of advertisers from the platform due to activist pressure. And then he said, threat to free speech or something like that, you know, and I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, the, you know, three days earlier, he had given AOC a hard time for saying it's a free speech issue to demand that somebody pay $8 a month to get a certain special status on an app that you freely sign up to use that you would be able to use without right. that special status anyway. Right. That's not a free speech issue. But right. then Ad advertisers later leaving is not free, right, they, they exactly. everyone has the right, in fact, you have a First Amendment right to associate or disassociate with who you please. Like, people are starting to get really confused. Free speech is an amorphous concept. If, we're, if we mean the First Amendment right to free speech, the First Amendment is only a bulwark against government censorship. It only prohibits, thank goodness it does, in very strong language, prohibits the government from violating your speech rights. That's not, that's not Twitter. Now, I think it's fine to liken what Twitter does to a kind of censorship. In some cases, we've discussed many times on the show, we've discussed um, social media moderation calls that are really bad, that have happened to me, that have happened to other people. Yeah, it's been bad. I think it, it, it is akin to a kind of censorship, even if it's not illegal, and it's fine to call it out. Um, but we need to be, we, we can't only have, we, we need to call those things out just for being bad because we don't agree with them, or they should enforce their own policy. It's not the language of free speech is not always going to get you there because it is just a it's just a company with its own rules. So yeah, we're getting I a little confused exactly if we right. like lean too hard into the into the free speech framing, which I think Elon must know on on some on, on some in some way in some sense. But me, so meanwhile, as you mentioned, Musk's feud with Representative AOC is been reignited. On Saturday, he took to Twitter and said, hot take, not everything AOC says is 100% accurate. This came in response to tweets by AOC and actor Mark Ruffalo. AOC tweeting, yo, while I have your attention, why should people pay $8 just for their app to get bricked when they say something you don't like? This is what my app has looked like ever since my tweet upset you yesterday. What's good doesn't seem very free speechy to me. Ruffalo then replied to this saying, Elon, please, for the love of decency, <clears throat> get off Twitter, hand the keys over to someone who does this as an actual job and get on with running Tesla and SpaceX. You are destroying your credibility. It's not a good look. Um, you know, Mark Ruffalo is like famously wrong about everything, right? You, you know when he's entered the yeah. chat that, you know, whatever he's... Yeah. Here, here's my problem Great with actor. this conversation. Great actor, terrible opinions. <laughs> <laughs> right, is, is I feel like both the left and the right are missing the point. The left is acting like if you give conservatives fair shakes on this app, that's the equivalent of turning it into gab. And the yeah. right is acting like if you make it, if you say to people, if you tweet the N-word, we're going to suspend you because we want to make money on this app. We want to advertise on it and we want black people to feel like human beings here. The right is acting like if you say that, that that's the equivalent of what's been going right. on up until now where every conservative gets shadow banned. It's not. The real problem is that Musk is in danger of turning Twitter into WeChat. I mean, that that is the danger, is this is mm -hmm. not a person who cares about free speech at all. We know that from his dealings with Ch the Chinese Communist Party. We know that he has given them over all the data in the Teslas. We know that he's totally willing to play game with their censorship and surveillance, re surveillance regime. That is the threat. This guy uses free speech, throws it around to make himself seem like a maverick here in the US, to make himself the darling of the right, when the truth is, is that, you know, 
in China, he has a, t we just look at what he's doing there. You know that this is all just a game for him, which, you know, look, he's having a great time, you know, and now yeah. he's got this huge debt. He's got to find a way to make money on this. He's flirting with AOC. She's flirting back. It's awesome. Everybody's having a good time. You know, it's really fun to watch. I, I would, there's a I would, danger here, I think. I would urge him to, right now, it's, it looks like he wants to be both the referee and a player if we're thinking of it in that sense. And that is going to open him up to all sorts of charges of hypocrisy. Like, he replies to people on Twitter so much, or sometimes on individual, people say, like, Elon, fix this, and he'll be, like, looking into it. He only does, and right now, he most commonly does that for very right-wing people. So that ends up looking biased, which is fine if he's just a combatant in the fray, but now he owns the company, and, and it's going to open him up to his own accusations of unfairness. Um, I also, yeah, I, I think it has been funny to see like progressives, liberals, liberal Democrats, et cetera, discover shadow banning for the first time. Like AOC, what she's talking about here, she is claiming that. She is implying that because she was having that feud with Elon, he did something to, there was something, some kind of malfeasance with her, with her account, which I, I don't think is the case. He said he's not really changed anything of that. So that's probably just some kind of glitch that happened to her. I had a glitch last week, probably for no, no reason. Uh, but, but that is the thing conservatives, not just conservatives, Brianna, our, our co-host, has said it happened to her, too, about their accounts getting shadow banned or nuked or there's something going on on the back end. Not, not clear, not explained why, who knows. It's a, it's a, like, that is the very thing right-wing people complain about. Now, now, now left-wing people are liberal, progressives, are complaining it's happening to them. So that is, that's totally flipped. And then also on the other side, I see a, some right-wing people going like, well, yes, this is Kath, but the Kathy Griffin technically did violate the rules, so it's totally fine take her down like really we're gonna we're gonna i mean donald trump also technically violated the rules that did like like people you in the past there have been violations of the rules and you've said well but it's censorship to do this like everyone is just everyone just really wants to i think root for their own team in a very um debilitating for our society sort of way and a, a sad way for 100%, me but uh, 100%. let's and, just and have the, the rules that are evenly enforced that kind of default to a, 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 a if not a, a, an ethos of, of openness and discussion and debate while, uh, while realizing that in order to make this a, a, a place that people want to talk and discuss that is attractive to advertisers, because at the end of the day, Twitter wants to make money, there are going to be some rules to, to uh, remove really obnoxious, loathsome content. Um, so Musk revealed on Friday, by the way, that Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue, apparently due, he says, to activist groups pressuring advertisers to drop it. According to Musk, this is even though nothing has changed so far with content moderation and, quote, we did everything we could to appease the activists, extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America, which is what you alluded to earlier. Right. And Musk then announced that Twitter will soon allow its users to monetize their own content on the platform in addition to adding long form text to tweets. Like, so here's my problem is like a lot of what he's doing, I really think is great. Like monetizing the blue checks. I mean, have you ever seen anything so small that has exposed the addiction that the blue check Twitterati has to the status that they have on that platform? I mean, it was mm -hmm. just so delicious to see the collective meltdown from people like 
like AOC and so forth at the idea that they will not be prioritized anymore, that any person with eight bucks to spare will be able mm -hmm. to buy the kind of privilege they've been enjoying, right? It was, it was totally delicious. The idea that Twitter has to be able to make money, the idea that we should become the, the customers, right, rather than the product, right? You know, they always say in Silicon Valley, something is free you're the product, right? Yep. I mean, this is all great stuff. I just, I think your comment about the referee and the player is so brilliant, Robbie, because that's exactly the problem is like, he fired all of the people, you know, who he needed in order to make this vision happen. Now they're sort of like sheepishly inviting some people back. They accidentally fired too many people, right? It's a mess. It's a mess. It's just, he's 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 extremely messy. And, you know, I, I, I totally agree. He's not the right person to be the referee. And the fact that he is sort of so, you know, it's so clear that his so much of his personality is invested in this right now, right? The time he spends replying to random people, you know, it's it's it's. I agree with you that that is a real problem. But again, you know, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but like you know, as we're sitting here enjoying all of this stuff on Twitter, so is China. Like they are mm -hmm. very 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 happy, you mm -hmm. know, that Elon Musk now owns, you know, something that is akin to the public square in America. But I should call out before we go the all the uh, the chatter from uh, kind of misinformation journal mainstream media type people or people who spe claim to specialize in in that beat which is the biggest red flag you could ever hear from someone uh, they <laughs> saying how this is this is still in this is in time to ruin and hijack the election right it be now that we've had like four days of Elon Elon's regime running Twitter now the elections are truly lost for Democrats right that's that's the thing that's the reason Democrats are going to lose is because Elon has been in charge of of, uh, of Twitter for the last several days I mean it, it that that thinking really does pervade I mean like we're making fun of it because it's ridiculous but that is a thinking that pervades much mainstream media discourse on tech right now like people the masses are not on Twitter Twitter's an important space because so many journalists and political people are active there and it's it's probably it has an impact on policy because the you know the tastemakers are there but people it's not a popular site for for the masses for the vote like they're not they're not getting their cues from some tweak. And he didn't even make any tweaks, but if he made some tweak to Twitter in the last four days, that's not, that's not what's changing votes. It's so insane to fixate on that as, uh, as what's going on. So of course the mainstream media is fixated on exactly that. <laughs> of course. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. With only one day left of campaigning, Democrats are confronting the nightmare scenario they always feared, a referendum on President Biden's handling of the economy. According to CNN, strategists have all but abandoned hope that the protection of abortion rights and democracy are enough to convince voters to keep both the House and the Senate blue. Recent Siena College polling shows that in the lead up to midterms, the GOP focused on issues that voters found increasingly important, like inflation, the economy, and immigration. Meanwhile, Democrats hedged their bets on issues voters grew to care less and less about, like abortion, the threat to democracy, and also gun policies. Longtime Democratic strategist Hillary Rosen had this to say about Dems' midterm strategy over the weekend. I'm a loyal Democrat, but I am not happy. I just think that we are, you know, we did not listen to voters in this election. And I think we're going to have a bad night. And, you know, this conversation is not going to have much impact on Tuesday, but I hope it has an impact going forward. Because when voters tell you over and over and over again that they care mostly about the economy, listen to them. Stop talking about democracy being at stake. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think it's good advice. I guess the only issue with that, though, is maybe the Democrats don't think they have a winning hand on any of the issues that voters care most about right now. So they want to they wanted to talk about other things because what are they going to say on on immigration, on inflation, et cetera? Um, but I guess that speaks to kind of larger problems with the policy focus of the Biden administration, which is you know as unlimited money um, to Ukraine and you know whatever we're doing with with oil and energy and just kind of staying the course, even though voters are saying no, we want they but the voters want different policies. They can't dress up the policies is something other than what they are. So I think I disagree with you a little bit. I think this is a much more systemic problem, which is that, you know, we don't have a political divide in this country. We have a class divide. Mm -hmm. We have one class of Americans, the majority of Americans, who are very worried about the things that middle class and working class people worry about, which are inflation, crime and immigration. You know, people coming across the border to take working class people's jobs. And then we have a class that has the luxury of sitting around and worrying about things like democracy, worrying about things like, you know, late term abortions, worrying about things like climate change. These have become in this economy with this level of crime, with this open border. Those have become luxury beliefs that you you have to have a certain status in order to have the luxury of caring about those things, which the majority of Americans just don't have. Two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And I will just say one more thing, which is that um, what is a bigger threat to democracy than not being able to walk to the corner store without being shot at, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what is a bigger threat to democracy than not having a national border? Right. I mean, the Democrats don't exact they're not really uh, legislating. They're not really ruling over, um, you know, the, uh, democracy. They are actually presenting threats to it at every level. I mean, what is a bigger threat to democracy than listening to what two thirds of Americans are begging you to do and doing the opposite? Right. I mean, that's literally the opposite of democracy. So when they sit there and say, you know, only one side cares about democracy, but the biggest threats to democracy in this nation are coming from that side. Well, and, it, and it's a, a kind of, you know, rhetorical cheat to say democracy, democracy is threatened by my side losing, like by the, out, the outcome of democracy is 100%. going to be a threat. It's not a threat to, it's not, democracy is not what's threatened. The Democratic Party is what's threatened because of the, exactly. largely because of the policy choices it's made. I mean, Joe Biden won the election in 2020. Voters chose Biden and what he was running on over Trump. They did not want more of Trump. They can't stand him. So they chose Biden. They, the Democrats had, uh, they had total control of government and they had an opportunity to, to, to do something that voters would want and their, prep, their policy preferences where they focused has l totally lost voters. And now they're, you know, we're, they're on the precipice of getting really wiped out because it's the economy, stupid. Everyone seems to get that message uh, except for the MSM. Joy Ann Reed over at MSC, MSNBC had this to say about it, voters' inflation concerns. Let's watch. The people I ever heard hear use the word inflation are journalists um, and economists, right? So that is not part of the normal lexicon of the way people talk. So it's interesting that Republicans are doing something they don't normally do, right? Which is not use the, com the common tongue, right? Not use just common English to sort of use do on their campaigns like they're doing with crime. 
but what they've done is they've taught people the word inflation, right? Yeah. Most people who would have never used that word ever in their lives are using it now because they've been taught it, including on TV, including in newspapers. They've been taught this word and they, they sort of wrap this word around whatever it is that they really want to vote, the, the, you know, the reasons they really want to vote. That's so incredible because it's the opposite. It, common people know what inflation is because they pay very close attention. They, they better understand inflation than, than the wealthy and the privileged, the progressive elite, because if you know, the price of, of, I don't know, of bread you know, goes up 10 cents, that doesn't, Joy Ann Reed is never going to notice that, but working people, middle class people do notice that. So they know exactly what inflation is. It's obvious why that would be a top concern. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a priv fairly privileged person. I, I balk at my grocery bill these days. It's incredible. Um, it's, it's something that people absolutely have always paid attention to. This idea that a Republicans just trained or like hypnotized voters into caring about it or knowing what it is. No, they knew what it was. They, it's, it's such, such unbelievably myopic thinking. And it's just so condescending. I mean, first of all, even if it were true that people didn't know what inflation was, you know, a lot of people don't know what a myocardial infarction is. They know if they have a heart attack, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know it when it's, you're experiencing it. And the fact that Republicans have given language to voters who are experiencing something that the Democrats won't talk about, that's to their credit. And you saw the same thing with critical race theory, the same thing when Glenn Youngkin won. And they were sitting there being like, they don't know what critical race theory is. It's like, well, you know what? Republicans have given them the language to describe the thing they're seeing with their very yes. eyes. When the Democrats yes. and the progressives sit there and say, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? They right. tell them not to believe what they're seeing with their own eyes in their own pocketbooks. You know, can you imagine being a millionaire and sitting there saying people don't understand? They don't really know what inflation is. They don't really experience inflation. This is just hypnotism from the conservative media. It's so Gross. And to your point earlier, you're so right about democracy. You have this situation where the Democrats have talked themselves into it. You know, it, when we win, it's democracy. When they win, it's fascism. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and they, they literally cannot see that they have lost the mandate. They have lost the will of the people. They have so many Americans are sitting there literally begging them, bring down my grocery bill. It stopped the crime in my neighborhood. Is that too much to ask? And it is. And so they come up with all of this other language to talk about things that are not really concerns of the American people to distract. And then you see people like President Obama showing up and then just smearing people who disagree with them because those people had the misfortune of not being millionaires who own you know, enormous properties on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's absolutely the case. And, and also the, the fear of... of Republicans or, or Trump or whoever stealing, uh, you know, elections by cheating or by, ref, you know, refusing to acknowledge the results. To, to be clear, I, I understand why there was that fear. Trump's behavior in the wake of 2020 was, you know, was abhorrent, uh, destructive and self-destructive because his, it has, I think, dramatically lowered his chances of ever being elected president again. But all, all that said, he, he, could, he could be elected again legitimately. Republicans could be elected again right. legitimately. They're about to be elected legitimately in all over the country. 
because Democrats are just going to lose for having concentrated on the wrong things. So this, this threat to democracy, this threat to the system, the structures, you, you, it's not, it's not going to get stolen from you. It's, you're just going to lose because you've lost what the mandate of the, of the people is, which is what happens. You know, this is a cyclical, our, our, our right. two-sided nature to our politics ensures that no side tends to dominate have extreme dominance for very long. Uh, you'll you'll have you know the party win, and then maybe they have both houses of Congress, and then they, they lose one or the other. Then they're out of power. Like it just switches. It's a constant um, uh, turnover that I think is unhealthy, and that we really get uh, we get really worked up because it's always so close, and it's so close in so many states, and and our our I guess our debates feel more. Um, acrimonious or more cutthroat because it feels like there's it's a it's a really close battle all the time um, that's the downside of it the upside is of it is that it just that one side wins and then then they lose the next like there's not there's talks of like one side or the other assembling this like permanent governing majority or something just doesn't is, is not is not possible you don't have enough popular approval for any for either one side to just ha like have a total mandate so there will always be the other side checking you you know, in the next election cycle, if not that one, the one after, which is a very interesting dynamic um, that has it plus, pluses and minuses. So, Absolutely. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. The Washington Post reports that the Biden administration is quietly encouraging Ukraine to be open with negotiations with Russia. Admin officials are reportedly asking that the Ukrainian officials would stop making statements that they will not consider peace talks until a new Russian president takes power. While these alleged talks are noted to be, quote, private in terms of a nudge to Ukraine, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says differently. Sullivan traveled to Ukraine last week to meet with Ukrainian officials. One official statement from the Office of the President of Ukraine says, quote, Ukraine received confirmation of unwavering support from the United States until it gains victory over the aggressor. And a press release from the White House reassures full support for Ukraine and also notes a decision by Sullivan to send an additional $400 million in aid to Ukraine. Hmm. Well, this is, I mean, this is good news, I would say. This is a glimmer of hope. Uh, we have, uh, speaking for myself, um, I know Brianna feels this way when she's in the chair. Um, look, there needs to be diplomacy and negotiation because that's this war is going to end with negotiation one way or the other. It, it, that could be tomorrow. That could be a month from now. That could be a year from now. That could be 10 years from now. Or I guess it could be never. But it, it's, not, it's not going to end. It's very unlikely to end with Ukraine conquering Russia and deposing Vladimir Putin. That's just not going to happen. I, I, you guess you could hope for Vladimir Putin becoming so, you know, kind of out of sync with his inner circle. He gets ousted or something. That wouldn't necessarily mean an end to any war either. That could make things worse, et cetera. You just don't know. But the, the whole premise of this aid to Ukraine that we've been sending should have been, here you go, here is aid so that you don't, to, to protect your country, to protect your people. But we want diplomacy, we want negotiation to happen so we can bring this to a speedy end because it's terrible to see all the lives being lost on both sides of this conflict and the broader ramifications for energy prices, et cetera, and so on, and food shortages in, uh, in, in, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, that should be what we're striving for. And, and the, the kind of open-ended, unwavering, no matter what, till the end of time, we will continue to fund you, that the administration has outlined is, was, I think, ludicrous and is not in line, I don't think, with what actual Americans 
feel about this conflict. They, they're sorry for Ukraine. They support Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is tyrannical. That doesn't mean endless support without any strings attached. I don't think that's what the American people think they were signing up for, to the extent they signed up for this at all. Yeah, I mean, Ukraine saying that it received confirmation that it was going to get, you know, unwavering support from the United States until it gains victory over the aggressor. What does that mean? What does victory mean? What is the stated goal at this point from Ukraine's point of view? They won't say. Is it to retake the Donbass, which, by the way, was an independent region de facto when this whole conflict started? Is it to take Crimea, which the United States saw no reason to get involved in that when mm -hmm. Russia initially took Crimea back, right? What is the stated goal? We don't know. We're not told. Um, but I think something that's very interesting to your point about um, American public opinion is that Republicans are showing a real shift, Republican voters, in terms of their willingness to keep supporting this, you know, ad infinitum um, with no stated goals. You know, in the beginning, I think the vast majority of Americans, you know, we obviously on the side of Ukraine, obviously the the, the victims of this whole situation. But now, you know, 46 percent of Republican voters are saying, look, you know, when is enough enough? <laughs> you know, we have our own problems here. Why is it that we keep sending billions and billions and billions of dollars to another country with no end in sight, no stated goal when we have real problems here. And I think that shift, right, where mm -hmm. you used to have a sort of anti-war left and a, a neocon right, you know, American exceptionalism, rah, 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 let's go out and fight everybody else's wars for them. You've seen now a shift to where, as you guys have covered so well, the progressives sort of, you know, very timidly point out this idea of like, maybe negotiations, maybe diplomacy are a good idea and had to walk it back in humiliation and bury their heads in the sand, whereas it's the right that's now taking on the mantle of being the anti-war faction. Well, and to that point, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene told reporters uh, just recently, under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine should they take back Congress. I think uh, that level of breaking with the current policy is probably unlikely. But I like what Kevin uh, McCarthy said, who's likely to become um, Speaker of the House. He said that under Republican leadership, the blank check will end. There will be no more blank check of support for Ukraine. And I think that's a, you know, that's a pretty actually reasonable, middle ground, moderate position, in fact. Not saying we're going to leave Ukraine, we're going to hang Ukraine out to dry. We are just saying that the position the Biden administration has articulated, that there will be an endless amount of support, no matter what, come hell or high water, until the end of the, until, right, until conquest of Russia? That's crazy. That's, no one believes that's ever possible. We're going to, it's going to be a more reasonable uh, level of support, and, and there is going to be an attachment that, like, no, you have to say it down. And if that means something like, right, Crimea or Donbass independent or, or Russia aligned, but we and, and then a security guarantee from the U.S. or from NATO, Ukraine not joining NATO, but still getting the protection they would get if they were part of NATO, some kind of thing like that, work it out. That's going to be the point of, of any continuing uh, financial support. And right, that's the Republican position. The Democratic position, as you said, the progressives tried. They tried to indicate that position, and they were forced to walk it back. This is such a fascinating evolution. Um, the, it, it, by far, to the extent there is an anti-war faction, an anti-interventionist, anti-militarist, an anti-regime change faction, right, 15 years ago, you would have said that, that there was very little 
to, to that. There was um, that faction did not exist in the Republican Party. Ron, the Ron Paul movement sort of brought that faction into prominent into greater prominence in the Republican Party, and then it's kind of been well, you have anti-interventionist, anti-hawkish uh, voices in both parties. Not, not the case. That party is the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is the party of a kind of um, a neoliberal foreign policy of a, of a kind of nation-building foreign policy that is, uh, that again, it's another case where I just think it's out of step with what actual voters want. With, with no, with, again, with no malice toward, toward Ukraine, I, you know, I don't want to hear any, the kind of pro-Russia or pro-Putin apology making is, that, that is, I don't, that is, I think, wrong substantively and also not at all where the American people are. But it is not wrong. It is not, it is not cruel to question whether endless support financially is even good for this, con is even helping anyone beyond just prolonging the conflict and whether we can afford to do it when our, when our own citizens have, are, are suffering for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out that, you know, two weeks into this conflict in March, both Putin and Zelensky indicated that they would be open to three conditions that the Russians put on the table for immediate withdrawal of troops from Ukraine. Those conditions were um, that Crimea remain part of Russia, which it de facto is right now, that the Donbass region remain independent, which it was <laughs> at that time. Now, of course, Russia has illegally called it part of Russia. And the third condition was that Ukraine remain neutral, that it not join NATO, which Zelensky himself said he had gone on off of NATO membership, he, you know, he, you know, he doesn't want to beg on his knees to, to belong to NATO. Now, of course, a lot has happened since then. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian civilians have been murdered by this, you know, Russian invasion. Right? The, 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 this, that is totally true. The situation has changed, but. Is our foreign policy to be determined based on a kind of desire for revenge against Russia? Like, mm -hmm. I could see why maybe Zelensky has decided, you know, in exchange for that, I now am not going to relinquish, you know, belonging to NATO. I could see why from his point of view, from his national interest point of view, he might want that. But that does not mean that revenge against Russia for what it did to Ukraine, horrific as it was, is a U.S foreign policy priority. I'm sorry, that's a, just yeah. a totally different conversation. And we have our own national interests. We have our own fights going on. We are gearing up for a big smackdown with China. And I, I, I keep thinking that, you know, President Trump was onto something when he thought, you know, Russia would be better as an ally in that fight than as a trumped up adversary who, mm -hmm. yes, poses a big threat to Ukraine, but as far as I'm concerned, poses zero threat to the United States, except insofar as we prolong that, encourage the Ukraine to prolong this fight and our gas prices and our food prices yep. end up going up as a result of it. Right, I don't really, Blame. I mean, Zelensky is doing what makes sense from his perspective, I suppose. I mean, and he right. wasn't even a particularly, he started this as not a particularly anti-Russian voice. He's been sort of radicalized by being in the position of defending his country against an invasion. He can ask, I don't, I guess I don't begrudge him for asking for all the aid he wants. That's kind of his role to play. It's our role to responsibly say, well, we've said here, we're helping you. Yeah, this is unconscionable. You're the victim of an invasion. Here you go. But at this point, it's incumbent on us to say, well, we would continue to we would love to continue to help Ukraine, but you have to meet with you have to there has to be a dialogue. We have to open diplomatic channels between 
the Russian government and the Ukrainian government so that we can bring this to a conclusion that will not satisfy either party entirely. Uh, obviously, Putin is not going to desist in this if if it's so humiliating for Russia that then he is at risk of like losing power or something. That's, you know, holding out for that outcome there's going to be thousands more dead if we're holding out for that outcome. And, and if we don't want that, and I think it's morally correct to not want that, then our, our support needs to come attached with some strings, which is all of what diplomacy is. No one who has ever had the idea that we just have to give unlimited sums of money to our ostensible allies without any hope or connection that this is going to drive some policy outcome that we want. I mean, that's that's crazy thinking. I don't know. It's, it's wild that it has truly been the Biden administration's stated position. This now, we're, so we're learning behind the scenes. Maybe all along, I, I guess not, or maybe they've finally been, even, even though they got all mad, at, again, at the progressives for putting out that letter, articulating this exact policy, now they're, they're quietly um, doing it behind the scenes. Maybe they could do it a little less quietly, a little more loudly, and uh, we could bring this horrific uh, war to a conclusion as soon as possible. And we will Amen. be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Tuesday's midterms, former presidents Donald Trump and Barack Obama rallied for their respective Senate candidates in Pennsylvania in a last-ditch effort to rally voters that could decide whether Democrats maintain control over the Senate or not. Obama voiced his support for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, assuring Pennsylvanians that Fetterman's stroke did not change who he is. Meanwhile, he knows Dr. what it's like to get knocked down and then get back up. John Stroke did not change who he is. It didn't change what he cares about. It didn't change his values, his heart, his fight. It doesn't change who he will represent when he gets to the United States Senate. He'll represent you, and that's what you deserve. Meanwhile, Dr. Mehmet Oz was supported by former President Trump as he encouraged voters to look at the election as a referendum on the state of America. I want you to contact 10 people, do it at church, do it before the Steelers game, just find the time. And here's the question you're going to ask them. Are you happy with the way America is going? Hold a second. If they say yes, take their car keys away. They should not be driving in that condition. But most of them, 70% will say no. And when they say no, Tell them that I believe that we are the land of opportunity. Joining us now to discuss is Washington, D.C. correspondent for News Nation, Kelly Meyer, who is in the Keystone State as we speak. Hello, Kelly. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you for joining us. So obviously this is a very closely watched, um, important race, neck and neck, uh, Obama stumping for Fetterman, Trump for Oz, et cetera. You know, what are you seeing and hearing on the ground? A lot of energy here in the Keystone State, which is key uh, 
of course, to the balance of power. Um, obviously, you see the importance of Pennsylvania with three presidents, one current, two former, coming to the state over the weekend, trying to rally support, especially in the Senate race. That's really what we're looking at here in Pennsylvania, the race between television celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz and uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. As we saw after the next Star News Nation debate, uh, the polls, uh, you know, shifting a bit, Oz gaining some momentum following that uh, as some uh, folks got to see how Fetterman performed in that debate, some criticizing how he performed as he's recovering from his stroke. So some folks saying that they uh, may not support him due to that. Um, others, as you heard in uh, the clip there from uh, former President Obama saying the stroke didn't affect who he is as a person and how he'll vote on the Senate floor. So it's going to be interesting to see how this impacts him in this race. It's very rare to have a running candidate who just had a stroke days before the Pennsylvania primary, now in this race, still in the race, um, and, and trying to see if he can hold the seat, uh, hold the U.S. Senate seat here. They're trying to claim the seat back. It was uh, Republican Senator Pat Toomey had the seat. He's retiring. So Republicans trying to hold on to it and Democrats trying to pick it up and then have two Democratic senators from Pennsylvania. Of course, they have Democratic Senator Bob Casey right now. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us from the road. Um, it's so great to hear your perspective. You know, from looking at this from the outside, um, it seems like, you know, you have this one candidate, Mehmet Oz, who is very unclear what he believes in. He seems like, you know, so Trump endorsed him probably because he's a celebrity. I, I think there was actually a much more MAGA candidate in the race in Kathy Barnett. But, you know, it's very unclear what he believes in, where he stands. And then you have someone like John Fetterman, a guy with a lot of heart, but who had this, you know, this big stroke, this big setback. I guess my question is, how much are people voting based on party and how much are they voting based on candidate? Well, that's what's really interesting here, because I did a story on this last week about the split ticket. So you have Democratic governor candidate Josh Shapiro, and then you have Republican candidate Doug Mastriano. That's for governor. So when you see governor on the top of the ballot, you go down the ballot. But for some folks, they're saying, OK, I'm going to do I'm not going to go for for Republicans. I'm not going to go for Doug Mastriano for governor, but I will do Oz. But I'm going to do Shapiro for governor. So you see some people here, especially more moderate Republicans, splitting their ticket. Uh, so for Democrats, they might go down the ballot, go for Fetterman. So we're seeing that a little bit um, with moderate Republicans. I'm not sure if you're going to see moderate Democrats then go for Oz over Fetterman just due to what happened with the stroke. Um, but it is interesting to see how some folks are splitting the ticket here. I heard that from uh, you know people I was talking with from outside of Philadelphia to outside of Luzerne County. Um, so it's interesting to see that. But it really, you know, as they always say, uh, the generic saying you're going to hear mm -hmm. today and tomorrow is the turnout. It all comes down to turnout. And then, you know, of course, you're going to see it skewed toward the Republican candidate as the results start coming in, because that's the day of. They got to start counting the counting the ballots. They can't start counting those ballots until the morning of Election Day. And that could take, you know, well into four days, as we saw with the uh, uh, the 2020 presidential election, but they have invested, I believe, 65 million into different counties to make sure that they have the resources they need to count these ballots, especially in places, big cities like Philadelphia. They hope to have the majority of those mail-ins counted by the morning following. So we're going to be really watching as those mail-in returns come in to see how they uh, sway for Fetterman. So just keep an eye on those results. Know that they may be skewed for the Republican in the beginning and then shift towards the Democrats, just depending on how the turnout goes. That's what we're really looking at here. 
the crime problem in Philadelphia is so bad right now on a national scale. It's one of the worst places for uh, for crime issues right now. And Republicans are have been leaning into um, uh, the, the idea that Democrats have been soft on crime, and that's why you're getting some of these policies. Um, are, are you hearing from people who are going to vote Republican, maybe in 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 um, in uh, Philadelphia or, or elsewhere for the first time because of how bad it's gotten, and because they are, you know, ag- agreeing with that kind of criticism of of Democrats like Joe Biden and John Fetterman. You may see that as far as who we talked to when we were in Philadelphia about a week or two ago, we were on the ground with some grassroots organizations trying to get out the vote, specifically looking at uh, black and brown communities, because Mm -hmm. the turnout there among black voters, especially in previous elections for Biden, for Clinton, uh, for Obama was big. So they're really trying to make sure they have that that turnout, especially in a city like Philadelphia, to bump up uh, the chances of Fetterman getting into this seat. Um, Like you said, crime is a big problem in the city. So whether or not that's a factor in for some Democrats there, but as far as the ones I spoke to, they're very much going to go down the ticket. Shapiro, Fetterman, uh, and they fully are going to support the Democratic candidate because that's where they stand in the party. So it'll be interesting to see some others if they sway a different way. Absolutely. So, Kelly, I want to get your take on this. Former President Trump speaking in Pennsylvania on behalf of Senate candidate Dr. Oz had this to say about his future political aspirations. Let's take a listen. So, everybody, I promise you, in the very next very, very, very short period of time, you're going to be so happy, okay? You're going to be so happy. And one of the reasons I I don't want to do that right now, because I'd like to do it. But you know what? And I really mean this. I want to have the focus tonight be on Dr. Oz and on Doug Mastriano. So, you know, Kelly, we often in the media, we make fun of other pundits who are obsessing over Trump. He's not on the ticket. He's not running for office. But what are you hearing on the ground? Is he a factor in people in turnout? Is he a factor in who people are voting for? Um, What are you what are you hearing? Well, I'll just tell you this. I'm in Pennsylvania now. I'm from Pennsylvania and I'm from a county that was notoriously blue for so long and flipped to President Trump in 2016 and in 2020. It's Luzerne County, Wilkes-Barre, just about 20 minutes down the road from Scranton, where President Biden is from. And I've been home visiting and seeing signs walking around neighborhoods where, you know, there's a Doug Mastriano sign. There's a a Mehmet Oz sign. And there's a Trump Pence sign there. And they're not even on the ballot this year. There's uh, just a couple blocks down um, from our home. There's a big uh, place where there's, I think they're passing out uh, pamphlets and, and maybe just an election hub for all the Republican candidates and a big Trump Pence sign and a big Trump 2024 sign. So I think very much to people there, at least from what I'm seeing, is that it's almost as if Trump's on the ballot. And you see that because he's also endorsing these candidates. So I think for him, Tuesday is also a test of, you know, a temperature of 
how how or if he should run in 2024 by putting those folks he endorsed out there, seeing how they fare, taking the temperature of the support he still has and the weight he has in this race and then deciding in the weeks following whether or not he'll run. And teasing that, I think, is interesting in a place like Pennsylvania, which really came out to support him, especially in counties like Luzerne in 16 and 20. So he has a lot of support in places like that. Hmm. Well, we got to leave it there. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Well, just a day before the 2022 midterm election, over 40 million people have already cast their votes, keeping pace with the record level of voter turnout for the 2019 midterm elections. Republicans appear to be in the lead, with the polls indicating that the GOP will flip the House, where they only need to net five seats, and I bet they do a lot better than that. They could take over the Senate as well, which is currently deadlocked at 50-50. Key battleground states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona will most likely determine the fate of Congress, with voters focused mostly on inflation and the overall state of the economy. Joining us now to discuss is data journalist and director of Big Data Poll, Rich Barris. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for Thank having me. It's so good to be here. Coming. Yes, it's great to have you. So, uh, Crystal Ball us, uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, you know, I think the Senate obviously is a a little bit more questionable, but I think it's a foregone conclusion uh, that the Republican Party will take the House. Uh, The margin, you know, I I think that it's a solid if, you know, people low as 15, 20 seats. I think that's on the low end. I I really do. It's a first term incumbent midterm. And although some of the polling does make it look a little bit more competitive, we have seen this movie before. And uh, at the end of the day, some of the, the the indicators that are really predictive, presidential approval rating, the direction of the country, dissatisfaction in general, and the issue set, um, you know, historically tells us that it, it's probably going to be a worse night for House Democrats than, than most people uh, want to admit at this point. Uh, maybe not, but that's historically the most likely scenario. In the Senate, there are just a lot of uh, a lot of states where Democrats are on defense in some of the areas where uh, Republicans have to hold uh, some of our polling and others have shown that it has gotten brighter for Republicans as we got closer to this election. So again, uh, you know, I'm thinking that when I'm thinking we have it as the most likely is around it's 52 seats. It's possible if there is a, a you know red tsunami, whatever you want to call it, it could go higher. But, you know, elections, they're, they're funny like that. There will be incumbents in the Senate that we thought were done, dead in the water, and they'll hold on. And there'll be others that we thought were incredibly vulnerable and, and uh, you know, likely to be defeated and, and or, or the reverse, like, you know, that uh, we thought they would hold on, but they don't and they're defeated. That's the nature of midterm elections. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting picture. I, I think uh, I've predicted that Nevada will go Republican. I think Pennsylvania will go Republican. Uh, then, then you have Arizona, where it's a little dicier. You have Georgia, where probably I, I suspect a runoff could come into play. And then I don't really know what that looks like. And then some people are talking about New Hampshire as well. Um, you were, you were. Speaking of New Hampshire, before we started um, rolling, that's uh, actually a race I think we've covered less um, on this show. So why don't you give us your quick take on that one? And so it, the way we poll as well, but in our modeling, our our model does uh, with some of the polls, uh, we we do reduce the weight for accuracy. And the most accurate poll in in New Hampshire is St. Anselm College, and they do have the Republican Don Baldack up a point. 
Uh, but another poll that was released just this morning had a sawn up by a point. So we had it actually as leaning Republicans or slightly. It was slightly Republican. But now because of that, it probably will move back to coin toss. The fundamentals favor Boldak. Uh, Hassan has a, a major problem that uh, Jean Shaheen never had. She was always underwater. On the question, if you ask voters in New Hampshire, do you think that she deserves reelection or not? Uh, Maggie Hassan always was a net negative on that question, whereas Jean Shaheen, who had a tight race against Scott Brown, uh, you know, she basically, uh, you know, it's not overwhelming, but she was always positive, maybe plus four, plus five on that question. So in this environment, it's entirely possible that Boldak uh, squeaks it out. Absolutely. It's just, you know, there are some of these states that really are pure coin tosses. In Nevada, uh, that's another one. I know a lot of people make hay out of early voting. Look, I always tell people not to read the early vote tea leaves. We simply don't know how those people voted. The early lead for Democrats in the early vote is not as big as it has been in the last couple of election cycles. And it really comes down, uh, we've seen this year after year in Nevada, it really comes down to that margin among independents. Uh, Donald Trump won them by about 13 or 14 points in 2016, but Democrats had a, had a turnout advantage and he came up a little shy. The last Republican to win statewide, Dean Heller, he won them by uh, 20 points, 53-33. That is what our polling and other polling is suggesting Laxalt and Lombardo lead by. So it really doesn't matter what any of that early vote says. At the end of the day, if if independents vote, you know, 20 plus points, it's happened. And you know, if they do, then both Democrats will lose. So that race is one of the states where Republicans are actually overstated in polling quite a bit. We haven't done that, but we, we also had a very, very slight lead for Laxalt with Lombardo doing a little bit better. So speaking of independent voters, um, two of the trends that I've, I'm very interested to see how they pan out. The first is um, shifts among black and Hispanic voters, particularly black and Hispanic men towards the Republican yeah. Party. Um, I'm really interested to hear what you're seeing on that front. And the other uh, front that I think is really interesting is that slew of blue dog Dems who won in 2018 in you know very Trumpy areas, people like um, Sharice Davids, Abigail Spamberger, Elisa Slotkin, you know, are they gonna pull through? Um, talk to us about those two issues. Uh, yeah, with the first part of that question, that's a great question because that, that adds to the uncertainty that we're talking about in a state like Nevada. Almost all of the registered Democrat crossover, uh, meaning Democrats, we know they're registered Democrats, um, you know, but they're going to, they told us they would vote Republican. In a state like Nevada, it was all non white, it was all Hispanic, and they weren't identifying as Democrats. They were telling us they were independents. So, you know, when, when you try to read the early vote tea leaves, and that's a, a great example of a, of a perfect trap. So you think you know what the partisan uh, split is going to be, but it ends up uh, surprising you. So it, it, almost none of the crossover this year is among white uh, educated Democrats or white Democrats at all. It's mostly coming from non-white. And uh, Alyssa Slotkin's a very interesting race. And I think it's one that will be more indicative of how the night went. Was it a wave? Was it not a wave? Uh, because Alyssa Slotkin was redrawn, if she was in the old Michigan 8, she'd be finished. She was redrawn into a more Dem-friendly district. And I actually watched a, a scope that she did where she said, uh, you know, we had to be creative this year. Otherwise, uh, you, know, you know, people like me are going to be in trouble. 
I, I thought myself, uh, you know, maybe 12 months ago, I, if that she got a district like this, she would likely hold on. And yet both sides, their polling shows that this, this is just dead even. So if that's true, then that's that's a bad sign for for Democrats. Spanberger in in Virginia seven. I think she's um, I think she's gone. I, I really do. I don't know how you hold on when you see shifts. Uh, if you go backward and rewind to 2021, when you see shifts like this, 10, 12 points, it's very hard, even though she is also in a in a more they it was redrawn to be more Democrat friendly. Not not that that was the goal. It's just population changes. That's what happened. Uh, and it looked like she was down by eight points at that time. So even with a more friendly district, I think it's probably safe to say that she's down still uh, it really at this point, if Virginia 10 is really close, a district like that. So two and seven would fall first. If Virginia 10, Biden plus almost 20 district is close, like some of the internal polling suggests on both sides, that's a very bad sign for Democrats. I actually think that that's one that, uh, that you know the Democrats gonna hold on in, but we'll see. Hmm. Very interesting. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was good being here. All the best. You as well. Well, our parent company, Nexstar, will have live coverage of the 2022 midterms. November 8th, News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And they're partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call all the big races. They'll also have journalists from across the country, including journalists from the Hill. And of course, we'll have post-election coverage for you right here on Rising. And we'll have more Rising right after this. While in office, Democrats passed landmark infrastructure legislation, but most voters don't realize or just don't care. Politico reports that Team Blue is having trouble getting voters to recognize the $1.2 trillion infrastructure law as a win for them. The bill promises to rebuild the nation's roads and bridges, expand broadband service, put more electric vehicles on the road, and provide millions of Americans with cleaner drinking water. But the country won't see the fruits of that labor for a few years. What's more is that most voters don't even know the bill passed in Congress. So, Amisha, can you help us break this down? Why is this such an issue for the Democrats? Well, quite frankly, because this was the landmark piece of legislation from President Biden. This is the biggest this is the most arduous. This is the one that was set to get our economy back on track um, before the infrastructure package, the infrastructure bill, the first bipartisan piece that came out of this administration. Um, we were looking at a C minus D rating for infrastructure as a nation. That is horrible for the richest nation on earth. We've seen the toll that um, un unavailable or badly worked roads, rails, and bridges have taken specifically with the, um, with, with the influx of natural disasters. We know about the grid system that totally failed in Texas. We're watching the heat waves rise across the Southeast. These issues are creating so much trouble for people to just live their daily lives. And it's frustrating because again, the, the president went through such a hard task of selling this to get those Republican votes, to get those um, Republican senators across the line. Hell, to even get uh, two of the stalwarts of the Democratic Party and Manchin and Cinema to actually support it as well. And it is a strategic piece that is the largest infrastructure package that we have seen in this country for generations. 
And as, as you all know, during the during the Trump administration, infrastructure week was literally every week of his administration and nothing ever happened. Here we get it across the aisle. And quite frankly, Americans seem to not but care. Democrats never talk about it. It's like they're embarrassed to have pushed through something that Republicans supported and voted for. Right. They, that that will uh, that will trigger too many of their viewers on uh, on um, mainstream and progressive cable news that they did something that some Republicans also like. I mean, they never talk about it as their accomplishments. It doesn't fit with the with um, it's you know, it's all it's abortion. It's threats to existential threats to democracy, et cetera. The, the issue you, is they didn't bring it up on the campaign trail. Yeah, so they, they talked about it when they were trying to get it passed. No, then I mean, I mean, in some time in the last about several it months weeks after, yeah. but, at, you know, on the campaign trail, in large part to um, to a statement that Bacha made, you know, in the opening is because you're not going to see the fruits for a long time. Yeah. I can tell you about the roads, the rails, the bridges and all these things are going to change and the jobs it's going to create. But people are waving the sign. Where are those jobs right now? Yeah. And it's hard to sell something to individuals who are unemployed today about what could happen tomorrow, about how better their communities can get tomorrow. My my grandmother, a lot of my family is in Jackson, Mississippi. They don't have clean running water. Right. So talking about an infrastructure package to these individuals who turn their water on and either it doesn't come on or it's black and muddy, they can't brush their teeth with it, can't take a bath, their kids can't go to school or anything else, that is a tough sell. And I think that as a nation, we have to recognize it's one thing to message and package. It's another thing to fully recognize that these bills take time to implement. And they also are largely dependent on state and the state recognition of what needs to be done and getting those things done. It's it's not just a White House initiative or a White House issue. But I do think that on the campaign trail, they could have had a much stronger conversation about this and even brought in some state leaders or at least people affected populations particularly. And it was I, I will say this as somebody who does, you know, vote and represent Democrats in various spaces. It was quite frankly very troubling to see just knowing how hard it was to get this done, that it kind of fell by the wayside in conversation mm. on the campaign trail. Mm. So, Amisha, think, let me ask you this. Yeah, Amisha, I'm curious if so where I think Robbie was going with this is it's sort of hard when if your number one um you know, theme on the campaign trail was vote for us because the other side are semi-fascists, vote for us because the other side is a threat to democracy. Something we heard again and again from President Obama, President Biden, you know, only, when, you know, democracy is on the ballot, only one party cares about that. Do you think that the reluctance to push this on the campaign trail came from the fact that you kind of don't want to cast yourself as like, um, cooperating with semi-fascists and if that's the way that you're casting your opponents like that kind of made it difficult to talk I think that's where Robbie was going it that I'm was exactly where I was going with it Bacha. <laughs> thank you for the assist the, the so what do you think about that Amisha mm -hmm. the interesting thing I find there is in President Biden you have someone who talks about working with segregationists you have someone who talks about his history of working with people who are a lot crazier than anybody who participated in January 6th. So I don't think that that was necessarily it as much as it is. This is an administration and this is a Democratic Party that, quite frankly, falls so far behind Republicans when it comes to messaging. And it is a consistent problem that they've had. And I don't think that it I think this year it's kind of blown up. But it's one that we talk about every election cycle. Besides that, it's also one of not reading the room. At the end of the day, Democrats have done a very poor job of paying attention to the polls on this when it comes to what Americans actually care about, specifically around employment, specifically around inflation, and telling you this is what you should care about. Meanwhile, everything, if you just have a, you don't even have to do a, you know, Ipsos poll. You can talk to people at a coffee shop and figure out what the problems in America are, and they're not going to tell you the things I think a lot of Democratic campaigns ran on, at least in the first few months. Granted, they're pivoting they're, now, they're but the election the day is 
coffee shop. That's what they're going to say. The coffee here costs too much money. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, former President Barack Obama stumped for Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman in Philadelphia last week, which left voters in the Democratic Party nostalgic for his energy and rhetoric compared to President Biden's. Left me nostalgic. I don't vote for any of them. Um, It's, uh, yeah, I I mean, I I was given a a pretty sizable reminder uh, in these last, uh, these most recent few days of uh, of how gifted uh, Obama was at that, you know, d- despite whatever you might think of his policies, gifted at the art of selling voters on his vision, on a, you know, re- rhetorically. And I I hate to like overemphasize it because it's stylistic. It's not you know we're not it's not about policy or, or anything like that. But man, you got to have it to the got to give it to the guy. He was good at 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 the art of politics. I mean, I would say that some of it was policy related. He talks about the threats to Social Security. He talks about um, some of the issues related to who Republicans have decided to put on the campaign trail, where you used to have candidates that at least measured up. Now it doesn't even matter. We'll take anybody. Um, I I think that he was very, it's it's stylistic, yes, because he knows what he's doing when he's out there. But he's also being very honest. And he is speaking to the people where they are. And I think that that is one of the things that has always been a strong assist for President Obama, former President Obama. The only issue I have with this is that the Democratic Party utilized him too doggone late. Mm -hmm. Why in the world do you Mm -hmm. wait until you only have a handful of days before the election, now one, for Obama to be on the campaign trail? Knowing that he is the strongest arsenal that you will ever have, this is the guy who can literally bring it home for you. And that part's frustrating, just acknowledging how strong he is and how capable he is to basically put on that cape within the last week of an election cycle. What do you think, Bacha? Yeah, I think, um, you know, during her, um, it, it, at the press conference for her confirmation, Judge Ketanji Brand Jackson said um, something that, I mean, really brought tears to my eyes. She said, I am the dream of the slave fulfilled. And I think for so many of us who love this nation and who struggle with our history, um, President Obama represented. Um, a, a path forward, a place that we hoped we had become. And, mm-hmm. I, but I, I, so when I see him and he speaks, I, I, I go back to that place in my soul and my heart and it is so moving. And then I have to remind myself, no, this is the person who engineered the foreclosure crisis for millions and millions of Americans. This is the guy who represented so much of what I think went wrong for the Democratic Party. So many working class Americans voted for him and then voted for Trump because of the policies that, you know, he didn't start, but he entrenched. And then, of course, that view that, you know, the other side isn't just wrong, they're dangerously wrong, they're evil and they're stupid. I mean, I think that kind of elitism is something a lot of people associate with him. So I feel I, I I had those exact feelings. I watch him speak and I'm like, my God, he's so good at that. He he reminds us of the best of us, of what we can be. But then I think again of the more concrete policy, like you said, Robbie, and I feel again like it's it's, you know, it's so much of what went wrong happened, you know, while we were longing to be our best mm. selves. Um, so I, I, I have all mm. of those mixed emotions. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, he, uh, I, I think he does a good job of maybe keeping um, disillusioned Democrats in the fold. Yeah. Obviously, I don't <laughs> know. It's, I think it's probably the hour is too late to bring back people who were his voters but have since moved right 
for the issues that you brought up. Um, I don't I don't know that they're they're coming back into the Democratic coalition. Um, everybody is kind of sorting them. The the a lot of working people, you know, sorting especially the white working class, obviously, uh, sorting itself into the Republican Party now. A, a phenomenon that really you know accelerated um, maybe toward the end of and then of course after. Obama. So it's it's interesting. I think it's interesting to recall an era of politics that wasn't all that long ago that is very, very, very much over, perhaps for good. So we'll have to leave it there. Our parent company, Nexstar, will, by the way, have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms. Tomorrow, News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at about 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Not about, probably exactly then. What am I saying? They're partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call the big races, and they'll also have journalists from across the country, including from us here at the Hill. And of course, we will have post-election coverage for you on Rising. Please tune into that, and you can tune into more Rising right after these messages. Welcome back to Rising, and we have strategist and political commentator Amisha Cross joining Bacha and I. Hello, Amisha. Good to see you. Glad to be here. All right, Bacha, what's next on our agenda? So Democrats should be worried about the youth vote in this year's midterm elections. This, according to the Washington Post. Early voting numbers among younger voters between the ages of 18 and 29 in the party are down. And because young people favor Democratic control of Congress by 57 percent to 31 percent, getting them in to vote in this election is crucial for Democrats. That's right. A poll from Harvard's Institute of Politics found that just 40 percent of young people said they would definitely vote this year. The Post reports. Meanwhile, former Vermont Democratic Governor Howard Dean weighed in on the role another important voting group for Democrats in an interview with News Nation's Chris Cuomo. Let's listen. Um, which voters matter most, Howard, um, in that race and for Democrats? Is it going to be black women again who are 35 to 55? Black women always matter. They are probably our most important and reliable constituency group. Um, Which but, makes it surprising uh, that you guys don't do more for them when you're in power. Well, uh, Biden has actually put more black and uh, uh, people of color and women in positions of power than Obama did. No, so I'm talking I, about I, in their own families and what kinds no, of opportunities I, I are done I'm talking about and how their federal rights judges. are secure. Politico reports that black voters account for 29% of early voters in Georgia this year, which is higher than their market, just upwards of 27% in the 2020 presidential election. Yet of the 5 million or so Georgians who voted in 2020, about 2.7 million have yet to cast a ballot this fall, Politico writes. You know, I thought that was a very uh, instructive answer from Howard Dean there when, when he was asked, you know, what has the Biden administration done for this core constituency group? He did did not say what policies they have implemented that that black women might want. He he said that he talked about representation in the administration, which is a very uh, I would say way of sidestepping the policy concern. Like you could have right, you could have a total, you could have better representation, totally increased representation without actually doing a, a darn thing that that constituency or any other constituency uh, wants. Did you did you find that? satisfying, Amisha, to hear that, well, we're increasing the representation. 
Well, I think that it's important to note the representation. Obviously, having Ketanji Brown-Jackson sit on the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. having Vice President Kamala Harris, several others in, in leadership roles, including the current White House press secretary. Um, but beyond that, I think that he missed an opportunity. And I like Howard Dean. He's a very smart strategist. And there's a reason why he is being utilized on the campaign trail at this point and in several conversations. But he missed a golden opportunity to talk about what the administration has done. And this administration has not particularly made a black woman's agenda in terms of policy, but what they have done that has helped many black women includes the child tax credits. That was a huge thing, particularly for black women who largely are the head of households in many families across this country. Small business funds, um, particularly for black women who house, who house the most small businesses of any group. When we talk about the student debt and, and the 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 changes to the student loan system, particularly student debt relief. This affects black women because they carry the largest burden of student loan debt across the country. Again, he missed an opportunity to have those conversations and really a deep dive into some of the policy arenas that haven't necessarily been tagged as black woman agenda items, but because of who they are going to affect the most, he definitely could have brought that into mm. the conversation. Yeah, I think it feels perfunctory to say, well, we have, right, we've hired more people who fit this demographic without saying, because you're right, he could have said the student loan thing or any, any other things. What did you make of it, Bacha? Well, I'm very curious what you think about this, Amisha, because we've run a few pieces at Newsweek by black men who feel that this focus on black women in the Democratic Party has been coming very much at their expense. And you're sort of seeing that in, in polls in Georgia, for example, where Stacey Abrams is really struggling with black men. And, you know, she had this quote over the weekend where she said that they're being targeted with disinformation, which, you know, a, a lot of black men took issue with and felt was really insulting. Um, but, but in particular, um, this focus on black women leading, I, I just have, you know, I've heard personally from friends, but also we've run pieces and we've seen in the polling, this sense that th that um, black men now are feeling left behind in the way that I think a lot of white working class men have felt left behind when you see this huge gap between, you know, people going to college, women have taken the lead on that. Um, I'm curious if you're seeing that as well, that gap and what you make of that. It's quite frankly frustrating because I do think that there are some inside community conversations that are being held amongst black people, specifically because of progress that black women have made economically, progress that black women have made educationally, things like that, where we still see that there are issues related to black men making that same level of progress. But politically, we have to look at these within the margins. 97%, 97, 98% of black women solely vote for the Democratic Party and black men aren't too far behind them, teetering in at 92, 93%. So it's not some huge rift that we're seeing. Black men and black women largely support Democrats. What we're seeing in Georgia is a little bit of a different story because this is one case where you see, at least in that Senate race, two black men running against each other. And these are two, this is a very different type of scenario because it puts black men, honestly, pitted against one party or the other. And also you have a state where, you know, SEC country reigns supreme, and you have somebody who, in, in my estimation, is a complete buffoon who's running for Senate uh, in Herschel Walker, but somebody who is represented and somebody who black men have loved for a very long mm. time. Sports and black men are like peanut butter and jelly. So seeing these things together run in tandem, I think that it is positing something very interesting to watch. Um, New York Times wrote an article about this yesterday, basically looking at Georgia and how this is shaking down, because I do think the black male vote in Georgia is going to be very interesting to see because that split in that vote 
break amongst Democrats and Republicans is largely going to be because black men see themselves reflected in a black candidate who stands for another party, um, who also in many ways represents what they actually appreciate. Outside of the scandal and everything else that's going on with him, Herschel Walker is a Southern black man who was born and raised there. He's somebody who talks like a lot of people's uncles in the South. He's somebody who, again, they watch play football for years and he, he represents something that they that many people can actually appreciate. I will take a step back, though, because I think that what we see in Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams is doing herself absolutely no favors mm -hmm. because she is literally blaming her campaign losses, um, the L she has taken on the trail, the fact that she's literally delivered a horrible campaign strategy for months now solely on black men. And that's a problem. And quite frankly, black men in Georgia are frustrated. Black men across the country are frustrated in watching how she is basically not taking ownership of the mistakes her and her campaign have made yes. and are solely laying that at She's the feet She's starting of to have a kind of Hillary Clinton-esque, I didn't fail, others failed me, about her inability to get elected. And it's, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's not a good look for anyone. And uh, it, it, I think that's setting in. I also want to talk a little bit about uh, the youth vote, uh, which was alluded to in this segment. Um, I, I don't, obviously, I don't think... I don't think Republicans are like poised to capture the youth vote. Um, they're usually not. I do. It does seem to me, and I've seen some polling to suggest this, that young people on the right, young people who are Republicans, are kind of trending even more conservative than previously. Um, so that will be interesting to watch. Um, but Democrats don't really have a candidate poised to capture the youth spirit either, because their candidates are all so old the, on the national profile. Same, same is true of the Republican. Uh, as as well, obviously, but um, but uh, well, young people in the Democratic coalition obviously pr preferring a kind of you know Bernie Sanders economic kind of left wing stuff, but um, you know not really having a new person to get excited about. So I, I could see the youth turnout just kind of being demoralized and depressed. What what would you expect, Bacha? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, um, to me, I know, Misha, you don't agree on this, but I think like the student loan forgiveness seemed to me like a sort of last ditch effort, almost a bribe to get young people to show up. And now, of course, it's being held up and we'll see what happens with that. But um, the, it, I, I, I don't I don't fault them for not being excited about the Democratic Party right now, because I think in many ways, you know, the 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 the, the future that they sort of thought they they might have based on what their parents lives were like their grandparents lives were like i mean the american dream just seems so far away for a lot of young people even a lot of millennials you know the idea of home ownership and um you know taking that next step building you know a home in a community um and and it, 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 how do you capture the imaginations of of young people when you're not promising them the future that they might want to envision themselves as part of. And I think that that's a that's sort of it's both parties have fallen down on this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I obviously have been extremely critical of the Democratic Party on this front. So I, I don't I don't I don't fault them necessarily. It's that they're not being offered anything to get them excited. Uh, where, where, where are you on this, Amisha? Well, young voters, regardless of election cycle, tend to tilt Democratic. Um, yeah. Be it whether they're more on the moderate spectrum or more on the liberal spectrum, they tend to tilt Democratic. So Democrats are always trying to get that vote to turn out. And it is quite frankly a very fickle vote. It comes out on occasion during presidential elections when there is a sexy candidate, when there is a candidate that is basically wooing them and doing everything that they believe in. Um, but in midterm elections, the under 40 crowd 
is pretty much almost always dismal anyway. So it's a it's a hard group to put your, you know, th throw all of your coins at and put your bets in in terms of turning out because historically speaking, they just don't come out for midterm elections. I think that this cycle, because of where President Biden's approval ratings are, he is noting and particularly trying to go after this younger vote. But with that being said, I, I think that to your point, Bacha, when you have issues of inflation, when you have young people who have student loan debt, when you have people who are forced to live in their parents' house because they can't afford their own apartments, because they can't afford rent, it is a much harder sell. In addition to, again, history repeats itself over and over again. They don't feel like there's anything for them to be excited around this election cycle. And for Democrats, it's hurtful to watch right now because the bread and butter has typically been in early voting. The early voting totals for younger voters are just bad. So the hope that they come out on Tuesday and just show up and show out, um, I'm gonna hold it out, but it's also, you know, it's the faith of a mustard seed, I guess, because at this point, I don't know what can be done in 24 hours to make them have any more enthusiasm than they've shown the entire election cycle. The New York Times had a really interesting snapshot of a sing of a family, an Arizona family. Let me see if I can find this article again. Um, I'm not going to be able to find it as I'm talking about it. Uh, it was interesting because so the so this family of four live in Arizona in uh, Phoenix, and the the mom is a MAGA full throated MAGA Republican, loves Trump, thinks Trump won the 2020. 20 election. The dad is slightly right-leaning. He was a libertarian. He's actually a libertarian party voter and is chill. Is a, I think a Buddhist. Uh, then they, they have two. They have two adult children living with them who are both like far left Democratic socialists. And so the point of the article is about like the horrors they live. They're just always at each other's throats. They're always angry about politics. This sounds like a nightmare kind of scenario. I guess one more and more families find themselves in as politics gets more and uh, more and more bitter and more divisive. But uh, you know, if you read the article, I think you come off liking the dad the most. I would say that though because he the dad has my, my politics or <laughs> more closely approximates my politics. But the kids and the mom are just, like, constantly fighting. But, like, here's the thing. Like, the kids, one works as a pet sitter. The other is an artist. They both live at home still. You know where I'm, see where I'm going with this? Like, young people have to aspire to a little bit more, work a little bit harder, try a little harder in some cases in order to, if they want to envision the kind of, democratic socialist future they want. Um, it, 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 it's never, if it's paired with like an unwillingness to get un, out from under your parents' thumb. Sorry, you have to deal with Fox News being on the, on the, on oh the TV gosh. all day long if you're so still living not, with your parents in your 30s. Sorry. That's so not where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> Me either. I, I, I was so ready for that story to take a different turn. No, it was, it uh, always, uh, I, I punched left uh, whenever I, uh, Punch to my left. Which I is thought everybody. you were gonna say like, look, like they can't even get good jobs. Look, they can't even afford rent. They're stuck in this. They situation. can't get good the jobs economy. because they majored in stupid things in college. <laughs> they could get. I'm sure they could get jobs. I'm sure they could get jobs. I think part of the issue is also um, it's, it's, it's Arizona. A it's a business friendly state. It's a double edged sword. Everybody wants work flexibility. Everybody wants to be able to essentially be their own boss of sorts. And that comes in many cases with its own downsides. Um, you can yeah. be a dog walker if you want to and schedule when you want to walk dogs, but you're not going to be able to live in a metropolitan downtown area yeah. and pay the rent on you. You can do that when you're so 18. When you're 35, you have to get a real job. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's just true. I mean, I don't have a real job. I talk on YouTube for a living, but uh, that'd be my advice to people who have acrimonious family political disputes all the time. Well, you're not meant to be <laughs> living together at that age. <laughs>
All right, well, a friendly reminder that our parent company, Nexstar, will have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms. November 8th, News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, partnering, of course, with Decision Desk HQ to call all of the big races. And they'll be featuring commentary from various journalists across the country, including some of us right here at the Hill. Also, we will have post-election coverage right here on Rising, so stay tuned for that. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that podcasts are downloaded and listened to, etc. We would appreciate if you gave us a listen on Roku and other streaming services. And I will see you back here tomorrow. Take care, everybody.